there's a church in the south that has a Sunday school class for parents of preschoolers. Well, the parents decided they didn't really like that name. They wanted to give something that was a little, a little cuter, a little more fun, and maybe a little more truthful as well. So they formed a task force of their class to study for a couple of hours over the week and come back with some recommendations for names. They looked at names like learners or seekers or searchers, and all of those are fine, and they describe in many ways the parents that are in this Sunday school class, but they came up with one that was cute and funny and also truthful. Tired parents class. That's about right, isn't it? And we might even say today, in light of all that's going on in our culture and our world and, and, and around us constantly all the time, that maybe this is our tired people worship service for the day. Yeah, I heard an amen out there somewhere. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. The pastor of that church said, it's not like we can just live life anymore. Life comes at us too fast. It comes at us too fast and we just can't handle it. It's impossible to handle everything that comes at us constantly. There's some real good evidence about this out there in the world that many of us are feeling overwhelmed and worried. I've asked that question quite a bit. How are you? How are you doing? Since the pandemic, I've heard these kind of responses. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I'm overwhelmed. I'm just worried and anxious all the time. I suspect many of you are familiar with those feelings. There's some research out there recently that seems to point this is a common phenomena, at least around in the English-speaking world. Did you see the article on the CNN website last week, a few days ago? It reported something that Elmo from Sesame Street posted on X, formerly known as Twitter. He said this, Elmo, just checking in. Not yet, guys. Can you back up on that? Thank you. Elmo said to this, I'm just checking in, guys. How's everyone doing? He received thousands of replies, thousands. And the summary of most of those replies was, Elmo, we're not doing very well. Here's three of them. First one, every morning I cannot wait to go back to sleep. Every Monday, I cannot wait for Friday to come. Every single day and every single week for life. Leave that up there for a moment. Every single day and every single week for life. I, I don't know this person. I don't know what their issues are. Maybe they're overwhelmed by the world. Maybe they're overwhelmed by something in their personal life or their family. But think of what it's like for this one. Every day, they cannot wait until they can get to Friday. Here's another. Elmo, I'm depressed and broke. Consider that person's life. Depressed and broke. Likely unable to pay for the kind of therapy they need to help them deal with the depression. It becomes kind of a, a vicious circle, doesn't it? Well, it just never seems to end. There never seems to be a way out. It's like they're in a room without doors and nowhere to get out. One more. I'm at my lowest. Thanks for asking. We know, don't we? I suspect many of us, if not most of us in this room, have felt like this at times. Felt like as though the world was just too overwhelming, too, too much to take on. I mean, think about it, right? I mean, think about it. 
Right now there's a war in, in Ukraine that is just an absolute slog. It doesn't seem like it's ever going to end. The Mideast crisis is, is, is in a disastrous mode. It seems like it's going to explode even more so. Look at our culture and the political climate in which we're in. I, I've said this a couple of times in sermons recently. I'm not trying to create a sense of alarm, but I'm, I'm worried about the, the threats of violence, the, unders, underspo- the quietly spoken threats that are out there in our country. It's easy to be overwhelmed, isn't it? To be worried, to be anxious, to be afraid. But sometimes it's not the outside influences that are, are causing us to feel that way. Sometimes it's us. Sometimes we do that to ourselves, our own desires, our own ambitions, our own worries, our own fears. Maybe there's something going on at work, you really want to make, make sure it happens and goes well, and you just find yourself in, in, a, in a rat race, just overwhelmed by whatever it is. I know there's been times like that in my life. Right after I got out of seminary, I was determined to become a well-known, famous youth minister. I wanted to be the guy who was one of the keynoters at the Youth Specialties Youth Ministers Convention. That's an organization that used to exist in supporting youth ministers from around the country. Two of my heroes in youth ministry, Mike Iaconelli and Bill McNabb, were, were keynoters for that convention and leaders of that, that convention. I think Bill McNabb preached here once at, at First Community years ago. I wanted to be like them. I really wanted to be on, on top of the world in terms of youth ministry, which think about that. I'm confessing a weakness there. I hope you're noticing. Because usually your number one goal in youth ministry is to lead young people to a deeper relationship with God. But I'd put my own desires up at the top and push God down to number two or number three. Well, I got hired at a church in San Diego, inherited a youth group of about five kids pretty soon within a year though. We had about 75 showing up on Sunday nights. A year from that, it was about 100. It was going really well until one day Julie came home, my wife, came home and said those four words no one ever wants to hear, we need to talk. She said, you're married to the church. I'm tired of being your girlfriend on the side. Either you're gonna be the husband that I I need and the father to our child that he needs and you're gonna be married to me or you're going to be married to the church and you need to decide. If we're gonna be married to each other, we gotta get some help now. We went through 18 months of therapy. It was the most difficult time of my life ever and the most beautiful time, frankly, for both of us. We learned lessons then that continue to, uh, to help us and support us in a relationship now. Every time, every now and then something bubbles up or we hit a little speed bump and one of us will quote Dr. Rowley, the therapist we worked with, a brilliant man who really understood what it's like to be uh, church leaders and, and just helped us greatly. <clears throat> 18 months, coincidentally, At about the end of that 18-month period, the Youth Specialties Youth Ministers Convention came to San Diego. Just so you know, I was not one of the keynoters. (laughs) But Julie and I registered to go, and the first night we went, we heard Brennan Manning. Brennan Manning was a former Roman Catholic priest, a brilliant writer, an amazing preacher. His keynote was 45 minutes long, and there were like three or four or 5,000 youth ministers from all over the country. He kind of got in our face a little bit and challenged us to be who God had called us to be and not acting out of fear all the time. It was an amazing, powerful sermon. The next day, Julie and I were signed up for a workshop with him on prayer and meditation. Only 30 were allowed to attend. We sat in the front row. He began by saying, you know you need to spend time in quiet. 
you know you need to spend time in prayer, but too many of you are trying to become the world's next great youth minister and you don't have any time for God. And then Julie elbowed me right in the ribs. I, you can't see it through this, the robe, but it's right here. I have a scar still there. She was right. And so was Brennan. Too often in my life, I've pushed God to the side because I'm working hard for Jesus and I don't have time for God. As strange as that sounds, it's, it's the truth. Too often we get caught up in our own stuff, our own desires, our own ambitions, only to push the ones we care for the most off to the side and out of our lives. We didn't read all of chapter one of Mark's gospel today, but I wanna give you a quick summary of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. According to Mark, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. It's a beautiful moment, a spiritually deep moment where as Jesus is being raised up out of the waters of the River Jordan, he hears a voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved child, in you I am well pleased. It's an amazing moment, but Jesus' ministry is going to be very busy almost overwhelming. He has no time to meet with his family for brunch and, and a mimosa and some French toast or something. No, he's got to go out to the desert where he's being driven by the Spirit. In fact, the word in, the, in Greek is balo, which means I throw. The Spirit, according to Mark, literally picked up Jesus and threw him into the desert for temptation to be tested to wrestle with all the issues in his ministry and what would come next. When that 40 days is over, he comes back. He comes back home and preaches. Then he recruits his disciples. And then he goes around healing and teaching, finds his way to Simon's mother-in-law, to her home. She's suffering from a fever. You need to know in antiquity, fevers were dangerous. You couldn't run to CVS and get some Tylenol to bring the fever down. You might die. Jesus literally is saving her life. The next thing you know, all kinds of people are being healed. People with emotional and mental and psychological and physical issues are, are flocking to Simon's mother-in-law's house. Pretty soon, according to Mark, as we heard a moment ago from Gwen, the entire city has gathered there. I'm pretty sure that Jesus slept well that night. And then the story says that he woke up early the next morning while it was still dark outside. And he went to a deserted place for prayer, for quiet, to renew, to, to recharge. Because he knew he couldn't deal with all the ministry needs that were coming before him without taking that moment to find a chance to reconnect with the very Spirit of God. The text then has an interesting line. The disciples hunt him down. And that's a literal translation of the Greek word. It means to hunt as though you're hunting for an animal. They track him down and they find him. And they're basically saying to him, Jesus, what are you doing? We have all these people back in, 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 in town. We have all these people back at, at Simon's mother-in-law's house. We got a lot of stuff to do. They're, they're behaving sort of like a, a church personnel committee on steroids. Cancel your prayer time. Don't study the Bible. We got work for you to do. Come on, let's get outside. Unlock the doors of the church. There are hundreds of needs out there and you've got to take care of it. But Jesus doesn't let his ego get sucked in. If it's me and, and they come to me and say, there's hundreds of people lined up and you've got work to do. Let's go get them. They're all there to see me. I would be like, yeah, let's go. I can't wait. This is exciting. But Jesus understands at a much deeper level that we cannot be controlled by outside anxieties. And instead he moves forward in his ministry.
He knows he needs that quiet before he can offer himself fully again. A couple of months ago, I had a, uh, an amazing conversation with my friend Karen. She's an African-American pastor in a church that is known for their community justice ministries. They do incredible work in their community. When there's a need for justice to be addressed, they are there with their pastor and with their leaders and with many members of the congregation to call attention to it and bring it to the, to the community's awareness. I asked her in, in, in this conversation, how do you organize for that? How does your church uh, organize to take care of these kinds of things? And she just smiled and said, Pastor Glenn, it's a part of our DNA. When there's a need, we just get up and we go. We take care of it. I, I said, that's a great answer. I love that it's a part of your DNA, but is there any steps you take initially? I really want it to learn. She said, I'll tell you this. This might be foreign to your ears. What we do before we take on any issue as a church, we bathe it in prayer. We pray individually, we pray corporately. We, we pray about our concerns and our worries and our fears. We name the barriers that we think might be out there. We talk about desiring God's presence among us and with us as we march out into the streets to face whatever the justice issue uh, is that needs to be dealt with. We bathe it in prayer. I love that phrase. It's foreign to our ears a little bit though, isn't it? That's not how you hear most of your pastors talking when we talk about prayer. It sounds conservative or fundamentalist or something, but it's not. It's a, it's a common phrase in the African-American church. It's a common way of describing how they find strength and, and courage to face whatever is there by joining together in a spirit of prayer. Whether it's hours or days or even weeks, they want to be sure that they are united through the spirit before they move forward to take on whatever it is. It's fascinating when you look at the story in Mark of what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't allow the anxieties of his disciples to control his, his behavior, nor does he get caught up in his own, his own ego. Uh, one of my favorite preachers, Rick Morley, says that I wonder if we preachers can learn from that. He has a blog post that he, he posted for pastors like Jennifer and Sarah and me to, to, to consider. He wonders if we would act the same way as Jesus does. He also wonders how our, our congregations and our leadership would act if we behaved so much like Jesus. Would we really be able to get away with it if, if we took Jesus' way of living seriously? Is our culture open enough to let that happen? He essentially says at the end, are you willing to give yourself to the way of Jesus? To take the time to pay attention to the needs of the world that are right before you. Consider for a moment your life. Who right now needs you? Who right now needs you to see them, to hear them, to understand them? I've noticed in my ministry, when I get away from my quiet time, I don't see as well or hear as well or respond as well to the needs of those I've been called to pastor. I would suspect the same is true for you in your own life, whether you're in ministry or, or not. I did a funeral service a few years ago for a man who was not a member of a church. He described himself as spiritual but not religious. 
I didn't know him very well, but we had several interactions over the years at uh, various places, uh, social interactions and also business interactions at, at times. As I said, he wasn't a member of a church, but he was always kind and gracious to me. He was very successful, lived in a big, beautiful home. I encountered him as a, as a wonderful leader in the community. When he found out that he was in his last days, he was in his 80s, he said to his children, his adult children, I'd like for Glenn Miles to lead my service. They agreed. A few days later, he passed. Two days after that, I met with the children at his beautiful home. Three children, a son, a daughter, and another son. We went through the, the planning of the service. Which scriptures would you like to read? Would you like some music included? You know, those sorts of things. And then I pulled out my personal notebook and I said, now, I'd love to learn about your dad more. I know him, but not very well. What else can I learn about your dad? The first one to speak was the oldest child, a son. He said, I cannot begin to tell you how great and deep my anger is toward my father. I played basketball, he said, from fourth grade through my freshman year of college. My dad did not attend one of my games. I played in the marching band in high school from ninth grade through twelfth grade. My dad did not attend one of our concerts, one of our parades, or any other event we were involved in. My dad was completely absent. The youngest one, another son, said similar things. He said, I would have been glad if dad had, hadn't worked so hard, if dad had made himself available to us. I would have been glad to have a smaller house, maybe not as many nice things if he would have spent more time with us. But, but Glenn, we want you to know, he worked seven days a week for 40 years before he finally retired. All we wanted, all we wanted was to be seen and heard and loved. The middle child, the daughter, said similar words and then made that statement again. Like my brothers, my anger is deep and has been there for many decades. And then they went silent. You ever been in a conversation like that? It's awkward. I'm a pastor. I was really tempted to rush in with some sort of cheap, quick pastoral advice, but I could feel Julie's elbow in my ribs still. Well, I was quiet. And then the daughter said, I have to admit that he became a wonderful grandparent to my children. Her two brothers who were there nodded their heads as well, to our children as well. I mean, he would get down on the floor, she said, and, and play some goofy game with the, with the kids, and then he'd give them horseyback rides and do all these other silly things, things he never did with any of us ever at all, it never gave us any hint. I have to admit, my children love their grandfather, and I know that he loves them. And then she said something I will never forget. Maybe the gift of being a grandparent is the opportunity to become the parent that God intended for you to be all, all along in the first place. I wonder if we have the ability to take that deep breath, to step away from all the stuff and the noise. You know, we pastors, we, we have a hard time doing that just as much as anybody else. In fact, we blame you. It's all your needs and all the stuff that you want and, the, and you want to call from Sarah and you want a lesson from Jennifer and all, all that stuff. We, we, we blame you or we blame the governing board or we blame our, our, our ministry teams or, and it's not fair, it's completely wrong. But I know as well as you do that 
you probably do the same thing. Oh, you may not blame the church, you might, or maybe you blame your boss or your coworker or your spouse or a parent or a child. And you just get so caught up in whatever the needs are. Oh, there's a pile of bills, I gotta pay all that stuff. We are oftentimes so caught up in, in our own stuff, we forget to be there for the ones we love. What if you could? Step back, breathe deeply, and in the quiet, allow God's Spirit to show you who you're called to be present for, to see, to hear, to understand. It might be the person you're sitting next to right now. It might be somebody on the other side of the world. Perhaps the finest gift you can give yourself and your family, your friends, your loved ones, is the gift of going out to a deserted place with Jesus to find strength, renewal, and the courage you need to give the world your finest self. In the name of the one who will love us forever. Amen.